I'm Stephen Gregory Smith. And I'm Matt Connor. Places, everyone, it's time for... The, the Connor and Smith Show! Thank you, Places. Okay, tonight we have an exciting guest. We have two-time Tony Award winner, Michael Cerverus, um, joined us for a chat, and... We're so excited he came on the show. Um, you first met Michael at uh, doing a, uh, a fundraising gala. Yeah, you guys have sung together. Yeah, we, we've sung together at the Italian Embassy in Washington, D.C. for the Sondheim Gala. Which we'll talk about maybe during the show. During yeah. the show. But that's where we first met Michael. So much more about all of that right after this quick break. We will be right back with Michael Cerberus. Hello. Hello, Michael. How are you? I'm doing well. How are you? Good. I'm here with Matt. Hello. Hello, Matt. If you hear someone raspy, it'll be me. Okay. I'll be the raspy one in the room. <laughs> um, Michael, uh, we first met you uh, at the Sondheim Awards in what year was that, Matthew? Um, gosh, after the, since this pandemic, I can't remember anything. Um, um, in it, D.C.? It was 2016, I think. Yes, 2016 in D.C., yes. and you At the Italian Embassy. Yes. Right, yeah, I remember that place. And it was honoring, was it John Wyden? Yes, yes, yeah. correct. <clears throat> right. And we were both, I think, considerably nervous because we were both performing together the Ballad of Booth. Right, yes. And it's quite wordy. And yes. we both had not done the roles in quite some time. Yes, yes. But so, I think but I think it went well as I as I remember. It did. It did go well. I hate like, Yeah, I was in the audience. You guys did amazing. Well, thank you. I mean, I, I usually have a program. <laughs> so I remember I I I'm always very honored to be asked to do things like that, but they're some of my least favorite things to do because they're some of the least rehearsed things. Yeah, exactly. And then you're trying to enjoy the <clears throat> evening before you perform and you generally don't because you're thinking about your lyrics and people are trying to talk to you and you're wondering if you should really eat what you're about to before you sing and... Yeah, I so, generally don't even try to enjoy myself with those things. Yeah. <laughs> and now I would imagine, you know, uh, uh, you probably are asked to do lots of things like that, right? Yeah. I mean, during, well, I was going to say during pre-pandemic -pan times, you know, it was a near daily kind of thing. But I, I have to say, you know, since the pandemic, <clears throat> it hasn't really changed and perhaps has even gotten, uh, has even grown. And I think I, the number of times that I get asked to do the virtual equivalent of those things now is probably uh, as much or more as before. So, Right, because now you can teleport everywhere via Zoom. Right, and it's so much harder to have a, a reasonable excuse for not not having time to do something so well we hope to make this uh interview a very low stress non uh you don't even have to put your makeup on you know it's it's already delightful 
<laughs> now, should we should we talk about assassins since we're already kind of there with the gala? Yeah, absolutely. Sure. Okay, well, <clears throat> okay. First of all, I'm sure all of us probably know this story, but didn't Stephen Sondheim wasn't he like at a dinner party and Jackie Kennedy was like sitting beside him, and he was being asked from her like, "What are you working on?" And he kind of didn't quite know what to say because he was in the process of writing assassins. <laughs> oh, that's interesting. I've never heard that story. Yeah, and I can't remember. Uh, did Did Steve tell you that himself? Well, I had drinks with him and Bernadette at the Four Seasons in Georgetown, but no one cares. <laughs> um, but no, I don't think he told me that. You know what? It might have been Eric Schaefer from Signature, because he. Mm, yeah. Anyway, it, that that's not something I read, but, and I'm sure Michael, you can talk about Assassins. It's a very unique piece uh the way it is sort of put together with all of these different assassins through history yeah yeah and, and every time it's done it's sort of maybe reinvented in a way that of a lens uh told through did was your production back into like the shooting gallery thing um yes it was it was sort of a you know the design <clears throat> looked like it was we were kind of under the the roller coaster at Coney Island or something, um, and and yes, there were you know there was a a kind of a kind of a carny uh, atmosphere to it, and the um, the uh, what's the character's name called? Not the balladeer, but the the other proprietor? kind of the proprietor. Yes, he was a kind of carny kind of uh, guy. Um, so. That was the sort of world, the physical world of the of the piece, um, and the only other production I've seen of it was the encore's production, and those are generally kind of stripped down sort of things anyway, kind of a staged concert. Um, I'm looking forward to John Doyle's version at um, at Classic Stage, which was supposed to. I think they were on the verge of beginning previews or, or beginning rehearsals. I'm not sure when the pandemic struck. So they'll be, they'll be gearing up, I guess, sometime over the next few months. Um, but I, John always has fascinating ways of presenting anything, but Sondheim in particular. So I'm, I'm very <clears throat> eager and curious to see that. Um, I think, you know, people can sort of play with the, the physical, world of the piece but i think the um the context of of the show and how it's received depends a lot i think on on the times that it's performed in and yet there are certain um constants which are kind of the reason for the piece that are sadly uh were true when it was written and true when it was conceived and true when we did it and sadly just as true now and i think the um you know the original production was in the uh in the the during the gulf war and <clears throat> our production was initially begun was supposed to start right after 911 and they halted it and um, by the time we did it, it was the Republican convention was in town in New York. And now, of course, everything is going to be viewed in, against the backdrop of the, um, the insurrection. 
So uh, I think some of the some of the arguments that oh maybe you know maybe it's a little it's a little exaggerated and and it's sort of making a fuss out of something that isn't really uh, you know such a matter of deep concern to the country. I don't think you can really make that argument with a straight face unless you know you're Republican, but you know. That's uh, <clears throat> and only a certain brand of Republican, I guess, at this point. Right, right, right. Um, we we did it in two thousand and five. Um, oh yeah, at Signature or at Signature? Yes. Yeah. Joe Calarco directed. Uh-huh. Yes, and it was uh, the set was the audience. So basically, it was a, a raked bank, uh, bank of seating that the audience was sat in, and then they were looking at just a a front curtain of an American flag. And when the show started, the flag dropped and what they were looking at was a mirror image of banked seats mm-hmm. and various characters kind of looking back at the audience. And it really was this kind of, there was a places you could run all around in through the audience. And it was really a powerful, I think his whole inspiration for that production was he made us all watch the film, um, Oh God! What's it called? <laughs> I can't remember. It, oh, oh! It's the one about the news channel. I just watched network. That. Network, yes. Oh, network. Uh huh. Just about like where rage changes to action. That the threshold and the precipice of what is that moment mm-hmm. where you know all of us get angry about something. All of us don't like certain political figures. Let's say, uh, but where does the kind of madness get triggered beyond just disliking someone? So right. it was interesting. Yeah. And that's why I think the show is still relevant. And, you know. Yeah, well, Michael, not that you need to care about this, but I spent a day with John Hinckley in the Assane Asylum in Washington, D.C. during the run of Assassins. Did you really? That's interesting. It was, it was the freakiest day of my life. And then I had to go do a show that night and be him. Mm-hmm. Anyway, what well, did so you, you what did you what did you take from that experience? Do you think? Um, well, to be completely honest, I on the way home I called Stephen, and I was bawling in my car. I can still see myself crossing the 14th Street Bridge, and I could barely even see. I was just sobbing because I was portraying him every night, and after meeting him, I was kind of mad at myself for sort of um, sensationalizing, is that the right word? Sensationalizing his journey and his life because all of a sudden I saw a beating heart and a soul who maybe didn't do everything correctly in life, but all of a sudden I'm like putting on makeup and going out and I don't know, it was a, remember that? It messed with my brain for a while until, you know, I had to realize it was just a show but meeting him really made me have such empathy for, and it was also just the experience. We got to walk uh, the lawn. He didn't know I was an actor. He thought I was there to visit dogs and cats. Um, Pet therapy. So I felt like I was an imposter. And after a while, I started to feel kind of crummy about the whole hmm. thing. But um, it is interesting, though, because in the short time they spent together, um, John really took to Matthew and even by the end wanted to give me a cat wanted to give him one of his cats and mm. it 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 was just interesting to kind of hear about like 
the obsession starting not that he was obsessed with matt like jodie foster but there's a personality type that um was certainly there that kind of affixed yeah so so michael you won the tony for your assassin's role yes yes that's right now now that same year did you have to perform like the assassins did you also have to perform at the tonys at the same time uh yes we did um i think we did the gun song i think now, when you perform at the Tonys, I mean, we know that, you know, as performers, adrenaline can always kind of kick in anyway. But like at the Tonys, is it like a super high that you're like in front of all of your peers? Like televised. Like, what, what does that even feel like? It's incredibly nerve wracking. And <clears throat> it's all everything is organized down to a millisecond. And you um, from early that day because you have to come and do a um you know a dress rehearsal you've you've rehearsed the because the version is seldom the exact version that you do in the show because it has to be a lot shorter for television um and sometimes what you do is a is a sort of mashup of several pieces of the of the show i think we just did a reduced version of of the gun song but it was different it was staged slightly differently and it was so you rehearse that in a rehearsal space while you're of course doing it at night the way you normally do it and so you have to get your head around that and remember which version you're doing when and then you have a rehearsal like a staging rehearsal at radio city um or wherever it happens to be that year um sort of in the days right before the Tonys and then the day of the Tonys early in the morning, you come and do a dress rehearsal and it's done as though the broadcast is happening. And so they time when the different casts arrive because there's only so much space backstage for everybody. So, you know, when you get off the bus, they have it timed so that you'll be brought into the wing with only a certain amount of time to have to, wait there so they aren't just like with 30 casts backstage and um and then you go out and do your number and then you get on the buses and go back home and if you're somebody who is attending the tonys also then you have to work out getting back into your fancy clothes and everything and i don't remember whether this was the case on the um on the assassins here but sometimes um it's on sometimes your show has a matinee that day so you'll go and do the dress rehearsal you'll go back to your theater and do your show and then you'll go from there to the uh the awards i think maybe i think we didn't because i sort of remember leaving the theater at night after the show and knowing that the next thing was going to be doing the tonys the next day um but yeah it's incredibly nerve-wracking in some ways if you're nominated, you're grateful to have something to do that night besides just sit there and obsess about, you know, trying not to care and worrying that you are caring too much and all the rest of it. So in some ways, it's nice to have the distraction of having something else to do. But it is, whether you're nominated or not, it's incredibly nerve wracking and and thrilling and exciting and, you know, a, a incredibly cool thing. But it's also really nerve-wracking 
Well, I, you know, as we know, sitting at home and watching every year, it's the most thrilling evening to see so many amazing uh, casts and shows in one, one spot, you know. Yeah. And, and because well, and you're also you... trying to say hi to all your friends who are in other shows that you never get to see because you're all performing at the same time. Right. So, and everybody's kind of like on a on a high so you're trying to say hi to people but you don't have time to say hi to people and you're trying to make sure that you're where you're supposed to be and it's you know you're just buzzing the whole night and since the advent of youtube you also understand that like it's out there probably somewhere forever like am i gonna have a leslie elgum's moment you know <laughs> yeah yeah and uh, and every time you walk into marie's crisis it's gonna be you know put on when you walk in exactly right right well why don't we pivot from theater for a second and yep. get to something very exciting yep um i hear that you have a new album coming out on june 4th yes and yeah. you have a band named loose cattle that's right and the and album is called heavy lifting yes and if you're listening right now you need to go buy this i i certainly would appreciate it if you did um, <laughs> yeah, right. it's, it's available for, for pre-order now, either, you know, as a digital download or CDs or good old fashioned vinyl. Um, and, uh, and then it'll be, like you said, it'll be released on uh, June 4th. So let's talk about this album journey. Are you just a vocalist on it? No, I also play guitar and, um, a little bit of mandolin and, uh, and I, wrote one of the songs and co-wrote another of them and um with my with my co-band leader Kimberly Kay and um and the band we're we're based essentially in New Orleans I kind of divide my time between New Orleans and New York depending on where I need to be for work um but everybody else lives in New Orleans and we recorded the album in the you know right before the pandemic before the lockdowns happened and um and had planned to release it in the spring of last year uh around the time that we had a number of uh live dates and and uh were booked at, at festivals in new orleans and other places and of course all of that shut down and so we decided not to put it out at that time because it just I wasn't sure what I felt like listening to, and I had no idea what other people were going to feel like listening to. And, um, and so we sort of waited until now and the, um, uh, and we finished, you know, the work on it and finished all the, the design and everything. And we actually titled the, uh, we had a bunch of different names for the record. Um, and we settled on heavy lifting, uh, sort of late last year, I think, um, partly inspired by a photograph that we had found that's, that is the, um, the basis for the cover art, but also because of the kind of double meaning of it, you know, on the one hand, the last 15 months, heavy lifting is a pretty good way to describe what we've all been sort of having to do in every aspect of our lives. Um, but there's also the sense now increasingly, uh, in this country, uh, of the heaviness perhaps beginning to lift. So, you know, it's, it's also heavy comma lifting. Um, so that was sort of the inspiration around that, but it's a, it's Americana music that it sort of goes from, um, 
sort of roots kind of rock songs to more country and folk songs and uh um and it's i think it's a pretty nicely varied record and it represents the different aspects of the band pretty well is everything is all all the tracks original no uh i think it's about sort of half and half i guess uh songs that that we've either written or were written for us by uh, songwriter friends um and then the others are covers um and songs that we we've either known for a long time and loved and been playing in our in our live sets or songs that we came to more recently that kind of spoke to us and we felt like we wanted to uh to to make a version from our point of view so the, you we, we have the holiday album we love the holiday album. oh, oh good oh good is, is, is now when does the band start when did it get together well, we've started in 20, uh, 2011, I think, in August of 2011. So I guess this is going to be our 10th year. Um, but we didn't record anything really for a long time. We, The band began because Kimberly and I had both been in bands previously that um, did uh, original music and and played live a lot and it it's so much work sort of creating the stuff getting the band together keeping the bands together rehearsing them finding gigs playing gigs doing all that stuff and um and initially our idea was let's just do only the fun part which is learning the songs and just playing them with your friends. So our our goal was to we we figured we're not going to bother trying to write stuff. We'll just pick country songs that we really enjoy because they have, you know, great narrative threads and great characters and that appealed to the kind of more theatrical sides of each of us. Kimberly um was never a, an actress necessarily but um but she went to Wagner College and was interested in theater. She ended up directing and writing more. Um, but, uh, so, so that was the original idea. So we were just going to be, just play covers and play in our friends' living rooms. And, and then we suddenly, as soon as we started, started to have these really terrific opportunities to play at, uh, to play on this NPR program, Mountain Stage, that broadcasts from my home state in West Virginia. And, um, and to play at Lincoln Center for the American Songbook series and, and all these really great gigs. And so pretty quickly we realized, oh, I guess we should maybe like rehearse and try to actually be good <laughs> if we're going to be doing this stuff. Um, but we weren't really recording stuff. We would record every year um, for Christmas. We would do a Christmas single and we would uh, we would choose it in the morning, learn it later that morning record it in the afternoon, mix it and master it in the evening, and then put it up on the web uh, on Christmas Eve or Christmas Day. And it was kind of a band tradition to do that. And after a few years, we had several of them in the can, and we thought, well, if we just go in and record you know, five or six more, we could have a Christmas album. So our very first album was uh, a live album from our residency at Studio 54 in New York. And the second record was 
this Christmas album. So we were doing everything backwards. You know, we did did all the things you're supposed to do later in your band's life, you know, your right. holiday record and your live record. That's right. what we started with. So this is actually almost 10 years into the band's existence. This is our debut studio album. <laughs> I, I love that trajectory, though. I mean, you, you might as well release your greatest hits first and tell people what they <laughs> yeah. are. Exactly. Exactly. Well, um, does the band have outfits? <laughs> um, sometimes, sometimes we have for, especially for our Christmas shows, we've done uh, various years. We've done like, you know, red velour jackets for all the guys. And, um, and we used to sort of be more uh, willfully country and, and that's begun to change. And I think this record is an interesting transition for us because some of the stuff still is very much, you know, in keeping with that. Um, but some of it I think is sort of pointing in possible future directions for the band um, in terms of our songwriting and just sonically, I think it's, we're starting to uh, be less concerned about being sticking so precisely to one particular genre because we all, we all come from different backgrounds and have a variety of musical interests and i think at a certain point we decided well why you know why should we limit ourselves to you know one particular idea if if something's a good idea it's a good idea and if something sounds good it sounds good so i think you're starting to hear more influences in this record and and possibly it you know the record after this which we're hoping will be only songs that we've written um you'll be able to look back at this record and go oh yeah i could see that you know that direction happening in this song or something like that when you when you're doing original composing for the band is the uh is the primary instrument the guitar or is things also sometimes written on the piano and does that influence the um the outcome or the ending of the composition whether it's uh, originally played on the piano or the guitar well it would it would really influence the outcome if i were to write on piano because i don't really play piano so so the limited and i've i've actually spoken to and read other songwriters who specifically will make themselves write on an instrument that they don't really play well because it it forces them to think differently and it forces them to you know not do things that they just know how to do instinctively um but i tend to write on guitar pretty exclusively i sometimes will uh i can kind of for five minutes you might think that i could play piano and then you'd realize i that's all i can do and and i'm just making up the rest um but I, I did recently, I, was, I spent New Year's at a friend's place in Lafayette, Louisiana, watching their dogs, and they have a piano there. And so I started playing, noodling around on it and actually wrote some pieces of a few different songs that I, I plan to go back to. Um, so, you know, I think, I think it would and possibly will inform the writing a lot if I, if I you know, follow through with that um but i do some some songs come from me sitting with the guitar and just sort of noodling around and and then 
stumbling across something and pursuing that idea and then uh, either following it up myself, trying to, you know, write some lyrics and melody, or sometimes I'll just send it to Kim and say, here's this, you know, here's this piece. Do you have uh, any lyrics or melody ideas for it? Or she'll sometimes, because she doesn't really play, she played trumpet in a ska punk band when she was uh, in high school. And, um, but she doesn't really play piano too much and doesn't play guitar. So she'll just sort of sing sometimes a wordless melody or sometimes a melody with some words um, into her phone and send that to me. And then I'll try to kind of decode what she was sort of hearing in her head and, and, uh, and try to put some, some chords to it and they'll send that back to her and she'll, you know, kind of give me some thoughts and stuff. And then occasionally we'll sit down together and just sort of, you know, a la, nashville tv show try to try to write uh try to write together isn't it absolutely like the ownership of writing a song and your own album and your own music the ownership of that is just such a thrilling journey of of collaborating and changing and wondering like what if we do this or what if we do that it's just such a different feeling than singing someone else's music it is, although I think because of my um, insecurities as a musician, the fact that I'm not uh, really a trained musician, I'm largely a self-taught musician, and because my father is a highly trained, highly skilled classical musician and music professor, I've, I've always struggled with the idea of feeling like somewhat of an imposter even in the Broadway musical world. Um, you know, I mean, I obviously have reason to kind of think I, I could allow myself a little bit of credibility at this point, but I still like, if I'm working with somebody who sight reads and, and really knows theory and stuff, I immediately feel like the slow kid in class. So when I'm, it's taken me a long time to be able to sing my own songs um, with the kind of authority and freedom that I will sing somebody else's songs. And, and actually, for a while, I used to try to pretend to myself that the, the songs that I had written were written somebody, by somebody else and I was just covering them. And right. that, that sort of was a way for me to not be so shy and so kind of apologizing while I was singing uh, with my own stuff, but I, it's still something I struggle with. Like I can, somebody can say, you know, sing a David Bowie song and I'll throw myself into it. And then they'll say, you know, sing as one of yours and I'll, you know, want to make sure the lights are turned down fairly low and right. everybody's drinking a lot. And, you know, you, you put, you put on an eye patch just in case someone's <laughs> yeah, wondering, exactly. like, is that Michael? Exactly. <laughs> well, let's talk about your creative journey. Like, Let's go back to like, I don't know where you, you know, started in some sort of school, whether it be in elementary, middle, high, college, when you really just got the art, the creative bug, maybe it came from dad being around music all the time. Uh, what, what, what has your journey been? Well, yeah, I grew up in a home where my father used to practice piano at night when we were going to sleep. And, you know, so I, I it was a constant in our house. Um, and my mother 
had been a modern dancer. She had uh, studied with Martha Graham at, at Juilliard, where she met my dad. And um, oh wow, that raises the bar. Yeah, yeah, exactly. But they chose not to have performing careers and instead, you know, decided to raise a family and and go into academia. And um, so, so I grew up with a, you know, a, being creative and. Uh, and being in the arts was a extremely natural, normal thing, it seemed to me. Um, uh, and I did, you know, I did all the other things too. I played Little League and I played, you know, Midget League bas- basketball and ran track and stuff in school. But I also always did plays. And it began, I guess, um, when my father was teaching we lived in St. Louis when I was really little and he was teaching at Webster college and uh, there was a production of Caucasian shock circle and they needed little kids to be in the play, the little prince's friends. And so I ended up being one of the little kids and my meaning that my, my initial introduction to the theater was in a Brecht play in second grade. So, you know, I think that explains a lot of the rest of my career. (laughs) Right, right, right. Just zoom right to assassins. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, You know, so it was a thing that that we did. We did as a family, we would kind of decamp to Eastern Kentucky and and do summer stock at uh, Jenny Wiley Summer Theater. Um, Or my dad would musical direct something at the community theater group in, in Huntington or um, or I would just start to do things on my own. And, um, and so it was something I just did, but hadn't necessarily chosen or decided that this was what I was going to do. So when I went to college, I applied to a wide range of places from conservatories to liberal arts places. Um, and in the end, I decided that i I wanted to have a, you know, a really broad and thorough education and not just sort of throw all my eggs in the, in the performing basket. And also I think because I sensed that I didn't, I didn't intend to be a musical theater actor. I, I intended to be a straight dramatic actor and I liked, you know, I liked being in the, the, community theater productions of musicals that I'd seen, but I really didn't feel like that was where my, my real interest lay necessarily. Um, it wasn't until I saw Sweeney Todd where I saw this very dark, dramatic kind of Shakespearean performance at the center of this musical that I suddenly thought, oh, maybe there is a kind of music theater that, that my tastes would lend themselves to. Um, but so I ended up going to Yale undergrad and they had a fantastic theater program, but it was not a pre-professional program at all. Um, so I, I studied voice with somebody privately with somebody from the music school, not again, not because I thought I was going to be in musicals, but because I wanted to do Shakespeare. So I thought, well, it'd be good to, you know, work on develop my voice to be able to do that. And, um, and so by the time I left Yale, I, I still was sort of struggling with the idea of whether this was what I wanted to do 
for my life, but I hadn't, I'd explored lots of other kinds of things in my classes and my time there. And I did a lot of theater while I was there, but I also did a lot of other things. And by the end of four years, I kind of felt like, well, I haven't found anything that I seem to be more adept at or that I seem to be more drawn to. So I guess I'll just go to New York and see what happens. And if, uh, you know, if it doesn't work out for whatever reason, then I can go back and explore one of the other things that I, you know, found interesting when I was in school. Um, and so that's what I did. And, uh, of course ended up spending more time serving dinner to people than, than serving Shakespeare to people for the first number of years. But, um, but I would always get enough of a little kernel of encouragement every time I was ready to kind of, you know, chuck it and, and, give up uh so that i kind of kept i kept going and uh and eventually the the time i spent working in restaurants got less and the time i spent working in theater and uh and being paid to act started to grow a little bit and and uh you know that's just sort of the way it went and along the way the music thing was interesting because i'd always played in bands since i was in high school um I always tried to justify the kinds of music that I was interested in to my classical musician father, who was, you know, never really terribly convinced. I would come to him and say, look, Kansas has a, a violin player in the band and Emerson Lake and Palmer did a version of pictures at an exhibition by Mussorgsky. And my dad was like, yeah, but why not just listen to Mussorgsky? So, <clears throat> um, so, so I, I would play music and I had bands and stuff from the time I was in junior high on, but, um, but I, I never really took it too seriously. And I would sort of dabble in, in composing a little bit, but I never really finished anything because there didn't seem to be a lot of point to it. And then when I was in Los Angeles, I got a job hired in New York to go out to Los Angeles to be in the TV series fame to play an English guitar student. And because I've always been a fan of music, I would go out to see bands a lot when I was out there. Um, and this was when Guns N' Roses was just beginning and uh, Jane's Addiction, I saw one of their first shows in a little club downtown. And so wow. it, was a, it was an exciting time for music in LA. And, um, and because in LA you kind of are assumed to be what you pretend to be. Um, I was meeting people who were seeing me play this English guitar student. So I was kind of given a pass into the world of music because of that. Right. Um, and, and I started meeting a lot of people who were, you know, spending their, all their time playing music. And, and I knew that I was not, a better guitar player or singer or anything else than these people. But I also wasn't any worse than some of them. And they had, you know, record deals and, and booking agents and stuff. So I thought, well, maybe, maybe I should try to finish some of my songs and maybe I should, you know, try to actually put a band together. So I did. And, and that was interesting because it, it then meant from then on, I had a way to be creative that didn't depend on, other people in theater you're always at the mercy of 
somebody mounting something for you to do unless you're John Cameron Mitchell and then you just create something for yourself to do. Um, but once I started playing music, it really took a lot of the pressure off of acting for me because I could, I could be more patient between in the inevitable times between uh, work opportunity opportunities, because I could still be creative. I could sit at home with my guitar and I could write songs and I could record them and I could get together with friends and play. And, um, and so that, that really changed my whole relation to, to my work and my, my creative self, I, I had more ownership of it. And I think it probably meant that I went into auditions with a little less uh, anxiety because it wasn't like, if I don't get this job, I'll have no way to be creative for the next six months, you know? Right, because you're already sort of validating your own uh, artistic existence by just being your, yourself. Yeah, I wasn't I wasn't feeding myself by doing it, you know, right, <laughs> or paying my rent, but you know, but I was feeding my my spiritual creative needs. Well, Stevie, I'm sorry, you want to talk? I've been talking like the entire night. That's okay. I'm in big talk. I know, um, but that that brings us to like the perfect Broadway debut of the Who's Tommy. I mean, well, yeah, <laughs> that's the perfect like. That and Hedwig, and we'll get to that in a second. And God, you've done so many amazing shows that we can't talk about them all, although I'd love to. But like, so your debut, huge deal. <laughs> Who's Tommy? You call dad and say, dad, I'm doing Tommy. And he's like, what? <laughs> well, you know, he was, he was, he was thrilled that, um, because they, because they had chosen not to, to have performing careers themselves and knew what a, what a, you know, tenuous existence that is. I there was such relief and and joy at the fact that it seemed like I might actually be able to you know make a go of this acting thing. Um, so it it didn't. And he loved the show. You know, he he didn't necessarily. Uh, you know, I think he felt it could have been dialed down volume wise a little bit, but uh, but he liked he loved the the. Um, the staging of it and and he was thrilled and proud and very happy um of course he was even more delighted when i started working with stephen sondheim some years later but uh but yeah they were they were really thrilled and for me it was kind of the ideal thing like you say if i if i was gonna write for myself a way to come to broadway it would you know i, I well i wouldn't have had the imagination to say you know I think it'd be great if some, you know, titan of rock music would would uh, make a Broadway show of one of their albums that I love and, you know, put me in the title role. I wouldn't <laughs> have even I wouldn't have even had the wherewithal to imagine something like that. Uh, what well, it looks like from what list I have of your Broadway credits and your off-Broadway credits, it looks like you do take on some pretty I don't want to say meaty or heavy, but these roles have really got some. Um, They're all over the map. Let's well, say that. I mean, from playing a Hedwig to um, the architect of the Titanic to um, Sweeney Todd, Sweeney Todd <laughs> to right. um, 
Juan Perón. I mean, they're all uh, pretty um, vast and huge as far as getting in and embodying those people. Yeah, I, I always, I think I always admired the character actors. You know, when I was growing up, the people, the actors that I admired the most were people that sort of disappeared into the roles. Uh, there are kind of, you know, broadly speaking, two kinds of actors. They're the actors that you go to see because you love them and you want to see them in, you know, in something. But you're you're always aware that you're seeing them, and that's that's part of the appeal. Um, and then there are the actors that you go to see because you know that they will disappear and and seem to be somebody entirely different. And every time it's somebody somebody different and those were the actors that i was always drawn to and and that i admired and and i guess you know in the early days of your career you don't have a lot of choice and you can't be all that picky although i i have to say i always have been probably pickier than i had a right to be often and um partly because i think i find the whole because I guess because like you're saying the the roles that I do are kind of take a lot out of you and so I want to make sure that I feel like it's going to be worth what it's going to cost me to do uh, to do them um, and there have been plenty of times that I've sort of felt like you know I could just be the you know the nice guy leading you know happy comedy kind of guy you know I, I i think there was a part of me that really wanted to get the parts that matthew broderick was getting back when we were you know younger and starting out but there was no way i was ever going to get those parts because i just you know that's not what i bring into the room and um and uh and now of course i i wouldn't trade any of it because it's meant that i've played like you say a, a real rogues gallery of uh of characters and fascinating characters and really interesting sometimes groundbreaking you know and boundary shifting kind of productions and uh and i think it's a combination of that's what finds me and that's what i find at the same time um and and i love it but it it does it does uh it does come at somewhat of a cost too i i would think that uh your last tony award you won for playing um um god is it bruce yeah bruce bechtel in fun home um which which, which we have not seen i've just heard i've not oh, seen yeah interesting yeah well you know we kind of never can take a busman's holiday because we're usually working in the theater in some aspect so that's sure. the yeah that's the downside that's what uh, we, we love about the Tony Awards and national tours, right? right? Yeah. But um, it, I've, I've listened to it. It's, I can only imagine and cannot wait until uh, I can get to see it. But even just auditorily, like uh, the tortured soul that you're portraying, um, can you speak a little to that show and what that process was like? Well, that was kind of the culmination of everything I sort of hoped when I was a young actor in college and kind of looking from the the bottom of the ladder ahead of me at 
you know, what, what my life might be in the, the theater. I think I imagined something like what Fun Home actually was. It was, um, it was so satisfying on every level from the material itself, the source material, the material that it was turned into on stage, the uh, creative team and the cast that I got to work with, um, and the places that it grew from, from the public to Circle in the Square, and then to the response to it and the the way the impact that it had on the audiences that came far beyond just it being a good show you know it it genuinely changed the lives of a large number of people that saw it um and so to be in something that you were proud of not just artistically but felt like you were fulfilling some uh some valuable service to the community and to uh, the the world in in bringing this story to uh, to audiences. You know that that was just that was everything I hoped that I could do in the theater. Um, I have to tell you, my way into that show was, of course, the Tony Award performance of the song "Ring of Keys," uh-huh. and I saw that and was just, I said, that is going to change a lot of people's lives. Yeah. Um, because even as a gay man, I remember that moment, that ring of keys moment in my own life of like, yeah. oh, right. This is what it is. This is what's up. And well, I and, think. And it's, go fascinating. Ahead. it's fascinating because uh, over time and it's, be it's become, it's entered the, you know, it's entered the language as a, as a thing that you know your ring of keys moment and it and it applies to uh to people from an amazing variety of of backgrounds and and you know it's certainly means a great deal to uh to anybody in the lesbian community but like you say also in the gay community and and then people you know in the straight community also have their version of those moments when something something solidifies for them something about themselves that they have n not been able to articulate and not been able to understand and then they see that suddenly and and can and it galvanizes them in some way and that's an amazing thing to identify and to to provide to people yeah it, it's it's just uh the second i saw it i went well there's there's something very, very important that kind of just reaches in and grabs you and captures you. Um, but it, was also, it was amazing also too, because, you know, we were talking about Tony performances and, um, and it was so unlike, if you remember that year, like all the other shows did what is generally done these days, you know, a mashup of a bunch of different things. Cause you're, you know, you only have like four minutes to, give the entire country an idea of what your show is and so that they'll hopefully want to buy tickets to it either on tour or when they come to New York and our producers and, you know, and, and creative team recognize that our show was not 
like other shows. And the thing to do was to just simply have this child sing the entire song. And, you know, my, my part of that performance was literally reading the paper while, while she sang. And, um, and it was the most amazing thing. It was so cool for me because it, it made, because I didn't have to perform. I didn't have the anxiety that poor Sydney did. Um, but she was such a, you know, consummate pro in a, in a tiny little body um, that she was amazing. But you, the, the silence that filled that huge auditorium full of people and the kind of, because a lot of people there had also not gotten to see the show because they were all in other shows and things. And, and it was, you could feel, you could feel the, the culture changing in the room as this was going on. And as we knew, we were beaming that out into televisions across the country where there were inevitably people who are going to be seeing this, who really needed to see this and know that, you know, that they were being spoken to. It was just an incredible honor to be part of that. Yeah. And it really just gives, uh, I guess your purpose and your journey and your contributions, just such validation to feel like you're a part of a bigger, a bigger message, a bigger thing than just uh, a fleeting moment. And yeah. also, and also Judy Kuhn. Yeah. Um, my goodness, uh, like, like again, I, I haven't seen it, but just even her vocal performance as the wife just uh, it breaks your heart. Yeah. And it's such a like identifiable character like that's the thing like you know who that woman is you've known yeah. other people like her yeah absolutely okay i see that we're at 52 minutes yeah michael is checking his watch and saying can these guys shut up <laughs> the kitchen's closed so here's what no, i'm gonna do I'm, I'm the one who's rambling on so no, uh, so what i'm gonna do michael I, i'm gonna start we have three questions to ask you before we go. The first question is, during the pandemic, everyone started like taking French, taking yoga. I learned how to bake. Did you take a moment to pick up something brand new in the past year? I have, I have developed skills in uh, video editing in iMovie and, uh, and recording in Pro Tools. Um, I've definitely upped my, my you know, technological savvy in those departments of necessity because we were doing stuff with the band and trying to record stuff remotely and do all that. And because I was getting calls to do, you know, a, a zoom tribute thing for Stephen Sondheim's birthday. And I, you know, I didn't want it to just be me with a shakily holding my iPhone and stuff. Um, so I would say, you know, that's, that's one that's one thing that I did and changed. And then also I discovered that apparently a New York kitchen is, is designed to do things besides just be the place where you put your takeout delivery food to put it in the microwave that you can actually, you can actually like make your own food apparently, which, which was a real revelation to me. It's my, it's my new show, the New York kitchen. <laughs> yeah. Um, second question, Michael, during the pandemic, did you finally get to watch like some binge show on Netflix? I was like, oh, my God, this was so good. 
like dozens of them, but I think the first one was Schitt's Creek, which I hadn't seen at all oh, and, God. and consumed in like a matter of days, I think. I'm always jealous of Moira's choices and thank God, why didn't I think of that when I was doing the job? <laughs> Yeah, that's that's quite the journey that's so well worth it. Yeah, absolutely. Just to watch her sing Danny Boy at the funeral. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Stevie, you want to do the, the honors? Yeah. So, uh, Michael, we have um, long story short, Matt is producing our friend Susan Derry's album, holiday album. It's called I Wish It So. And we've been talking a lot about wishes and the power of wishes and what wishes mean. So we've been asking all of our guests if they had one wish, um, what would that be it for yourself, your family, the nation, the world, whatever it may be. What would that one wish first thing that comes to the mind be? I would just wish that we could stop looking at each other as uh, something different than ourselves. I wish that I just wish that we could, you know, recognize our responsibility to each other and the planet that we live on. You know, as as varied and different as everybody is, I wish that we could recognize that uh, that shared sense of responsibility to each other, which. I honestly thought the pandemic might, you know, shake us into understanding. And sadly, we had the wrong people um, guiding us through that moment and and took us into even darker places. And I just, that would be my wish. That's a beautiful wish. Yes, absolutely. Responsibility begins with some sort of response. Mm -hmm. Yeah. 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 Well, my, Michael, I could talk to you about your amazing career. Yes, and don't, night, forget, to, don't but... forget to buy the album. Uh, yes, yes. June 14th, where Thank can we find, uh, on um, June 4th? Uh, June 4th, there's, we have a, a single out now, a cover of uh, Vic Chestnut's song called Aunt Avis, and there'll be another single coming out June 1st. Um, that's one of our new songs called Filling Space. Um, and those are available, but you can find them. We have a uh, on Bandcamp, if you look up, Loose Cattle on Bandcamp. You'll find all of our stuff there. Um, and it's on iTunes and all the, you know, all the regular outlets. We'll be sure to put those links in the description so people can access them easily. Cool. So, Thanks. Well, thank you so much, Michael, for talking to us. We really appreciate it. And you have a lovely evening. Thanks. You too. All right. Talk soon. Bye. 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 Such a great conversation, such a fascinating guy, so nice, so sweet, so down to earth. Um, we loved talking to him. Thank you, Michael, for coming on. Don't forget to get the album. Yes, get the get the album by Loose Cattle. Um, Spotify, iTunes, all the places you get music. Um, so subscribe, rate, and review this podcast if you can. We really appreciate it. It helps us out a lot. If you want to know more about us, you can find us at www.conner, C-O-N-N-E-R, Smith, S-M-I-T-H, musicals.com. That's www.connersmithmusicals.com. 
Um, so thanks so much for joining us here at the Connor and Smith Show. We hope you choke, check out. We don't hope you choke. <laughs> we hope you joke. We hope you check out other episodes. Uh, so check out who our other guests are. Please feel free to give a listen. And as we always say, turn, turn your, your heart, heart into art. art. Good night, everybody. Thank you.